Welcome to episode 16 of Jesus and the Meteorologist. My name is Kevin Cookagee, and I am your host. Our subject is discernment, and our aim is to teach, to elevate your minds and to exalt your courage, to accelerate and animate your industry and activity, and to excite in you an ambition to excel in every capacity, faculty, and virtue. Our mission is to inspire young men and women and their parents to understand the present in order to prepare for the future, a task that necessarily demands a proper interpretation of the past. Our aim is to highlight the antithesis between the way of the Lord and the ways of the world, between the truth of Scripture and the opinions of men, so that we might reflect the light of life in a culture of death. And what you couldn't see outside the studio is that my students here were trying to get me off my game in that introduction by bobbing their heads and pointing their fingers. Please don't do that. You make me laugh. All right. So if you gave us the honor of listening to the past few episodes, you will know that we spent some time addressing why political figures are not good weathermen and the dangers to a society whose government sets out to fix alleged problems that are not within their control like the climate and viruses, to name just a few, at the expense of government's actual duty to secure the God-given liberties of the people whose consent is the necessary precondition to any legitimate government. We confronted some of the popular patterns of this world in order to discern what is and what is not the responsibility of the church. And then toward the end of episode 15, in response to a listener's question, we touched ever so briefly on the topic of poverty— which is another one of those areas where the church has, in large part, abandoned its biblical duty and surrendered its authority to government. Because we left a lot of meat on the bone of that topic, I would like to use part of today's episode to examine the role of the church and the role of the state when it comes to issues of the poor. However, before we do that, let me establish what many of you probably already know must be the foundation for all of these topics. If there was any ambiguity from my answers to any questions last week, let me be crystal clear today. Whatever initiative one pursues through the institutes of government, business, or the church, no matter the motivation and no matter how charitable a particular initiative may appear, it must never come or be pursued at the expense of people. For if it comes at the expense of people— It is a direct violation of the greatest and second greatest commandment. How do we know this to be true? Well, let me ask our icebergs, bring them into the studio today. We have Roger, Winnie, and Penelope. Say hello. 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 Roger, I think, has a cold. Everybody else feeling well? Yes. Yes. (laughs) So, icebergs, to get us rolling today, what's the first and greatest commandment? To love, to the, love Lord the Lord your God, God with, with all, all your heart, heart all your soul, and all your, your mind. This is and the second. This is the first and greatest commandment. commandment, and the second is like it: love your neighbor and your as yourself. <laughs> all the law and the prophets hang on, hang these, on two these two commands. Okay, so the entirety of the Ten Commandments, in some, in summation, as well as Jesus' summation of them in Matthew, is a call to worship and love God, the Creator, exclusively and above all. And then out of that foundation to love your neighbor as yourself. So, how, icebergs, do we love our neighbors? And let me help you with that by asking a sub-question. Do we get to choose our own way to love our neighbor? Or is this up to God? It's up to God. Okay, can you elaborate? Well, 
our definition of love comes from what God says it is, not we don't get to make up our own definition of love. Okay, why not? Because we're not God. <laughs> okay, right? So God, isn't it up to God who created all things, and as the scripture say, it says, in whom we live and move and have our being, isn't it he who defines how we are to love our neighbors? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And where does he show us how we are to love our neighbors? In the Bible or the Ten Commandments? Yeah. The best way to love your neighbor is by obeying the Ten Commandments, right? And if you look closely at each of the commandments, they all provide one consistent underlying message, one premise upon which all of the commands are based. Do you know what that is? When it says, don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, don't commit adultery, don't covet, what do all of these commands presuppose? Actually, you know what? We can bring our clock in early today. Mm, They presuppose God. (laughs) I mean, ultimately. (laughs) Well, Or they presuppose that we're sinful and we would do those things. Okay, you're getting close, warmer. If it presupposes that you are sinful, that we are sinful, and we're being told not to do certain things, and being told to do certain things, right? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul. Positive commands and then negative commands, don't do this, don't do that. What is the presupposition that underlies all of these commands? We are sinful, we are created. God is perfect and the creator. Yeah, God is perfect, God is a creator. Everything and everyone belongs to God. God. <laughs> God. God. Nice voice. God. I know. Just Penelope, <laughs> you okay? <clears throat> yes. And why is this so important that everything and everyone belongs to God in, in context of our understanding the commandments and how to love our neighbor? Because we're equal to our neighbor. We're not above our neighbor. That's right. We are co-equal created images of God, right? Mm -hmm. So the fact that everything and everyone belongs to God is important because it establishes that we're neither to take or violate another's God-given privileges. And if we truly love our neighbor, we must resist all aims by one set of created beings who are seeking power over another set of created beings by stealing, destroying, coveting, lying about, or controlling that which they did not create and over which they have no authority. In fact, to love my neighbor as myself demands that whatever I do, no matter how important or charitable sounding, I must not steal my neighbor's liberty, take his life, or covet his property. And as Jesus warned, if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? We are, as Roger said, co-equals in God's created order. So if your good deeds result in stealing of power from or over another co-equal created in God's image or taking, taking advantage of him, and Leviticus 25 actually has a very specific admonition about not taking advantage of our neighbor, it is a direct violation of the greatest and the second greatest commandment, which, by virtue of Jesus' explanation in Matthew— covers and constitutes all of the commandments. When we return, the icebergs and I will roll up our sleeves to tackle the topic of poverty or, more accurately, our duties concerning the poor. You are listening to Jesus and the Meteorologists.
There are citizens in Tennessee working to reclaim the practice of self-governance in our state and ensure that a constitutional Republican form of government is preserved to future generations. We are Tennessee Stands. Do you want to get off the sidelines and learn how to stand for liberty in your community? Join us at TennesseeStands.org and on social media at Tennessee Stands. Welcome back to Jesus and the Meteorologists, a weekly squidget devoted to the topic of discernment. My name is Kevin Cookagee, and I am your host. As indicated earlier, we have in the studio with us today... Penelope. Winnie. And Roger. Welcome back, guys. Now let's enter the... Offices of Hypothesis. In order to examine the patterns of this world as it pertains to the poor. Our hypothesis today is another question, actually a question that was sent to me about five years ago by the leader of a college student group that had invited me to speak on campus. Listen carefully, because the student's question contains a number of unargued premises that I expect you to identify and challenge, even as you provide answers to the questions. I can already see Winnie getting that worried look. (laughs) This is great. All right, so this this is a quote. This is not my question. It's a quote directly from the student, but it's uh, loaded with lots of opportunities. Quote, which responsibilities of providing help to our citizens belong to the government and which belong to the church? And then the questioner provided some specific examples, including, quote, helping the poor, clothing the naked, feeding the hungry, etc. Again, quote, which responsibilities of providing help to our citizens belong to the government and which belong to the church. Helping the poor, clothing the naked, feeding the hungry. Now we'll ask for our clock. Well, I think, like Jesus said, you know, uh, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God's. It's the same for the duties as well. The government's job is to protect the people but not show, like, favor to the poor or the rich either way. Okay, it's a great start. And by the way, it's a great start, which opens up something we must discuss fundamentally, and that is where, where do we look? What is the final authority for our answers? God, but we find it in the Bible. Yeah, the scriptures, right? The word of God. And then if we're talking about politically, where is the final political authority, which, which would still be a subcategory of the word, right? But within the, within the context of political uh, responsibilities, where in America do we look for that? Anyone. It's Constitution. And? The Bible. <laughs> well, no, I already said, already established the Bible overall, uh-huh. right? Now, with, within that, then you have the political structures, or under that. And we have two... Uh, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Well, no, because Constitution and Bill of Rights are connected. Okay. Declaration of Independence, <laughs> right? Oh, okay. I'm sorry. So I the Declaration came first, and the Declaration established the philosophical, the moral foundation of why we're doing what we're doing. And then years later, after the, after the war for independence, we restructured the government into this constitution and the constitution laid forth, and we'll get into this a little bit later, laid forth the specific framework for how to achieve the moral principles that were set forth in the declaration. Okay. So, Go back now and pick up with what Winnie said, which is which is good. She referenced Jesus talking to the Sanhedrin when she said, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what is God's, setting forth the two kingdoms of church and state, right? 
all of which operate under God's authority, but they do have different roles and responsibilities. So as it pertains to the poor then, what questions does this raise in your mind? Are there any questions actually that the questioner's question raises? Notice how he says, which responsibilities of providing help to our citizens belong to the government and which belong to the church? Find do, any, do any belong to the government? Very good. Winnie, Penelope, what no, do you think? I agree with Roger. Yeah, I agree too. Meaning you agree with the question or you agree with what the answer that's implied by that question? The implied answer. Yeah. Yeah, I don't find anything in our declaration or in our constitution that says the government's role is to provide any help for the poor, right? Or does that mean we don't care for the poor? Of course not. I think a, a primer on the role of government is warranted if we're to adequately respond to this question. So let me give a little background and then we'll return to the question. Remember, the questioner asked which of these responsibilities. So he already presumes, doesn't he, that some of these responsibilities belong to government. Mm -hmm. And you've asked a good question. The duty of government, as we discussed, is plainly described in our founding documents. Declaration of Independence famously asserts that governments are instituted among men. Why? To secure their rights, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Constitution defines with specificity the limits of government to establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty. Taken together, the Declaration and Constitution affirm the lessons of history and human nature that our founders studied concerning the proper duties and limits of government. And all of these principles, as we know, are rooted in Scripture. No one more beautifully synthesized the duties and limits of government than Thomas Jefferson in his 1801 inaugural, un, <laughs> inaugural address, where he said, with all these blessings, what more is necessary to make us a happy and prosperous people? Still one thing more, fellow citizens, a wise and frugal government, which shall restrain men from injuring one another, shall leave them otherwise free to regulate their own pursuits of industry and improvement, and which shall not take from the mouth of labor the bread it has earned. This is the sum of good government. So governments fail when they get off this mission. In fact, the collapse of societies throughout the history of the world can be traced to the habit of governments inserting themselves into affairs where they do not belong while retreating from their obligations. And this is where we get to the problem. In many cases, Christians contribute to the problem by conflating the kingdom of heaven with the kingdom of this world, rather than making the distinction that Winnie spoke about. Advocating that the government solve problems for which it possesses neither the right nor the capacity. In so doing, we have surrendered to the state an undeserved moral authority to speak into issues where it has no business intruding and to act in areas that are exclusively reserved to God. One of the most poignant illustrations of how government intervention destroys a society is with respect to this issue of poverty. In the past 50 years alone, we've wasted over a trillion dollars in the so-called war on poverty. And to what end? Broken families greater dependence on government, and no decrease in the overall level of poverty. What does the Bible say? Anybody? The Bible says word, the church is to care for the poor. We're to care for the poor. That's one of the instructions that we find throughout Scripture. Okay, what else? There's two others. We're to care for the poor. We're to secure 
Justice for the poor. Justice for the poor. That's right. And number three, the Bible says that judgment will come against those who pervert justice by doing what? Oh, by showing um, favoritism to or against the poor. That's right. By showing favoritism against the poor or for the poor. And that last point is something that's missed also. In our society, a lot of people think it is honorable to give preference to the poor. But the Bible makes it very clear we are to give neither preference nor to discriminate against the poor, right? Mm -hmm. Yet, and this is key, despite the long history of governments, temporal rulers playing God, this duty to care for the poor, secure justice for the poor, belongs to the church, not the government. And it's important to note that Scripture does not suggest either that we eliminate poverty or produce a society without the poor. Did you know this? The aim to eliminate poverty, especially under sanction of law, results in all sorts of injustice, including taking from one group of people in order to give to another without the consent of either. This is not charity. It is compulsion, and God admonishes against it. If you look at Exodus, the Ten Commandments especially, again, you shall not covet, you shall not steal. Well, government steals more than money in the form of taxes. It steals liberty, it steals property, it steals security. And the term social justice is nowhere to be found in the scriptures, right? It's a euphemism for sanctioned or legalized coveting. It's an abomination from which we must repent because justice by its definition can only occur on an individual basis. Tell me why. Why is it that justice can only occur and is only re referenced in Scripture on an individual basis? Because we're all different and we're all made in the image of God. That's right. And we are all also what? Individually? Equal. Judged. And that implies individual? Responsibility. Responsibility. That's right. Our responsibility is individual, not corporate. Right? If Winnie steals your pen, it isn't all of our fault, right? It's Winnie's fault. I'm sorry. <laughs> Come on, Winnie. Right? And without truth, justice devolves into an instrument of those in power to wield according to their whims and favorites. So, compulsory aims to eliminate poverty or grand emotional appeals to produce a society without the poor presupposes that we can be what God called us to be without giving to those in need or without being in the company of the poor. But can we? Didn't Jesus say, you will always have the poor with you? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So, yeah. so then what does that tell us when people seek to eliminate poverty? Aside from the fact that Scripture doesn't tell us to eliminate poverty, what are people really trying to do, you think, when, they're, when they seek to eliminate poverty rather than caring for the poor, securing justice for the poor? Trying to get rid of it completely. And why would they try to get rid of it completely? Because it makes them uncomfortable. Bingo, right? Caring for the poor has as much to do with us who care for the poor as the person who's receiving it, that care, right? Securing justice for the poor has just as much to do with those of us who are called to secure justice for the poor as the person who's receiving the justice, right? Yes. So it's clearly a perversion of Scripture, although it sounds good on the surface. Oh, eliminate all poverty. Eliminate uh, the poor people. But that's not what God's calling us to do. God is calling us to 
roll up our sleeves and to be engaged with the poor, right? We're not to get rid of the poor. Let's talk about insensitive. Talk about rude. Talk about playing God, right? To, get, to eliminate any section of society because it makes us uncomfortable. The Bible doesn't even emphasize the term poverty. It speaks in terms of the poor. Why do you think that's the case? Do you understand the difference between poverty and the poor? The poor emphasizes people. Poverty is just a, a generalization. It's a group. That's exactly mm-hmm. right. I imagine it's because the term poor refers to people that we are to love, whereas poverty is merely a cold, inanimate object to be conquered. All right, when we return, ladies and gentlemen, we'll take a few moments to answer some questions. This is Jesus and the Meteorologists. So I wrote a little book all the way back in 2009 to address what was happening in America and what was likely to happen if we did not take corrective action. Unfortunately, too many of my predictions are coming true. The only surprise is the speed at which we have reached the precipice. The title of that little book is The Experts, and you can buy it on our webpage. Just go to JesusAndTheMeteorologist.com, click the image of the little brown book, and we'll send it to you for only $9.99. And then be sure to let me know what you think. Welcome back to Jesus and the Meteorologists. My name is Kevin Cookagee, and I am your host. Remember to post questions on Discord, which I'm told is hard to find, so um, maybe Roger can now tell us how to find it. Oh, yeah, you go to the link tree at the, the website, jesusandthemeteorologist.com. There's two buttons. It says, buy the book, and then it says, listen. And I think you click the listen button, it takes you to the link tree. Okay, great. Thank you. Or you can always do it the old-fashioned way. Email us at questions at icebergsnotsnowflakes.com. Um, we might even arrange to have you call into the program for the purpose of participating. And you might get a penguin's goal horn. Yeah, baby. You just wanted to do that. <laughs> I know. I love that horn. One of my favorite sounds in the world. Okay. I wish I had one for my car, actually. When I, I'll tell you this. When I was in elementary school, I used to be a big fan of Dukes of Hazard. And um, the General Lee, the car that Bo and Luke Duke drove, had the um, Dixie song. I used to say to my dad, oh, please, let's get one of those horns for our car. And never did. Maybe I can have my son uh, make my car have a penguin's goal horn. He seems to be skilled in those areas. That would be interesting. All right, so question today. Actually, Winnie raised a good one. So we're going to take her question directly. And I think it captures the voice of many So I'm going to allow her to give it, and we'll kind of talk through the answer here. Okay. So my question was, when people ask you, or they say, you know, you hear a lot about the minority, like taking one ethnic group or section of the community and saying, well, this is the minority, like you should give them preference, like to get into these schools, or, you know, you need like a wide variety, so we're going to give this minority Um, the preference, what should your response to that be? Right. So good question, Winnie. Um, Let's give her a ding for that. Very good question. And it it tackles the issue of racial quotas or racial preferences, right? Or minorities, because it's sometimes based on sex and gender, right? There are only two sexes, two genders. But historically, 
the reason that that is done, not justifying it, but the professed reason that that is done is that white men in particular have been permitted to have priority and dominance in society. Therefore, we must allow everyone else to catch up, right? That's the theory. Now, in reality, what is wrong with an approach like that to anything? To say, we're going to now allow, let's you use the example of getting into college, right? Mm -hmm. Or you did earlier. Let's assume that that's what we're talking about, <clears throat> and you are facing competition with someone who is deemed by society to have been uh, underserved and therefore deserving a not the same opportunity, but even a preferred or premium opportunity to get the benefits that would otherwise should be available to everybody equally, right? Yes. What is the problem with making college entrance um, if that's something you're interested in, what's what's the problem with making it based on priorities or preferences? Well, no matter, like, e even if you had someone who was, like, deemed not part of the minority and they were the best one, you're not going to have them in your college. You're going to have someone else who maybe hasn't worked as hard but has the preference. So what does it do to motivations? If you are aligned for a position and an opportunity and you have all the skill you need, and someone else has the same or less skill, but they happen to be of a different class or group of people. And I say that even in quotes, air quotes, because we as Christians are not to classify or categorize people any differently than God does, which is men and women, right? Otherwise, all co-equal sinners in the sight of God. But society puts us into these other boxes, and they divide us and distinguish us by race, by sex. They try to change it and say that we're, there's more sexes than two, right? More genders than two. And they use that to divide and to pit us against one another. What does it do to motivation if you as an individual who is deemed to have had a privilege, and again, I say that in quotes, is not allowed to compete based upon your qualifications, but is actually discriminated against? because you aren't of the right color or you aren't of the right gender. Motivation goes way down. Like, you know, like you can't fight this, so why even try? Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say it's, it'd be kind of like me not training for some kind of a marathon or something because for, at least if my goal was to win, I know I wouldn't be able to because I'm not a runner. So why would I train for something like that? Yeah, it, it, it clearly cuts against all manner of fairness, doesn't it? Yeah, and it even changes the motivation of the person who's getting the preference. They know they don't have to work as hard, and they're just going to have the preference. Exactly. If someone came to you, Winnie, and said, you know what? We're going to get you into school because of the fact that you wear uh, red and black flannel, which you're wearing today. Yep. <laughs> right? And you know that you're not getting in based on your skills, you're not getting in based on your grades, you're not getting in based on your character, but purely because of that sweater jacket thing that you're wearing. What, what do you call it? A hoodie? Flannel button-up hoodie. hoodie. <laughs> Flannel hoodie, yeah. So if if that was the the only condition that you had to meet to get into school, how would that make you feel? Well, my motivation for my grades in school would definitely you know, drop out. Like, I don't, all I have to do is red, wear this red flannel jacket and I'll be good. So it destroys... You invest in a nice washing machine or yeah. <laughs> dryer. So it destroys your motivation. 
But what else does it do? How else would you feel? Penelope, how would you feel if someone said, tried to grant you a privilege because of what you wear or what you look like rather than based upon your actual qualifications? I would feel like, like, obviously it's not just, and I would feel like kind of bad for the other people. I'd be like, I don't deserve this. Like we're all work. We all equally need to work hard, and then whoever is best will get into the school. It also belittles you. It yeah. belittles. Yeah. yeah, definitely. And you're like, hey, I, I can work hard enough to do this, but why are you giving me this privilege? Like, I don't know. It would kind of make me feel like I can't. I'm not good enough to do it, so they'll give me a privilege. Yes. It's, it's the highest of insults, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Someone who says to you, oh, we're going to give you a preference to get you in because— you know, there's this whole section of society has been privileged. We don't think they deserve these privileges anymore. So we're now going to give favors to other people based not on anything other than exterior classifications that have been imposed upon them by the world, by the way. That's very belittling. And it's belittling because why? What What's the fundamental point that makes that so belittling? Because we're all equal and nobody should... They shouldn't be given the preference just because of how they look. It should be based on, you know, how their performance is. And Yeah, it's belittling primarily because who who is someone else to tell me why I should be given this privilege or this preference? Just make it equal for everybody and let us all compete, right? It's the belief that someone else takes for himself and says, I'm going to determine that you get in and you don't get in based upon these preferences. You think you're doing me a favor? No, you're giving me the highest of insults. I don't need that kind of help. And this is this is exactly what is being done. And and it's being pushed as if it's merciful or charitable when it really is the highest of insults. All right. Uh, anything else to add before we close this episode? Anything we missed? Nope. <laughs> yeah, I can't think of anything. I thought that was a great discussion, great question. So we're going to up you from a ding to a... And we're Yay, ready to head you. out. <laughs> yeah. That's all the time we have today, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks again to our icebergs, our producer Rachel, and to all of our listeners and supporters. In the never-ending battle for hearts and minds, we aim to find and develop young men and women who, like the men of Issachar, understand the times and who know what to do. And how can we know what we're to do unless we believe what is true? My name is Kevin Cookagee, and you've been listening to Jesus and the Meteorologists. 